Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this message from June 6th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder answers the main question from our What is the Bible series? This sermon from Exodus spells out why God's rescue of the Hebrews is a crucial moment in biblical history and a lens through which much of the salvation narrative is understood. Join in with us as we dive deeper into why and how God wants us to embrace freedom and what's at stake if we fail to embrace this new identity. For more information, check out compassefc.com. Here's Pastor Craig. All right, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Compass. Hello. Hey, thank you. I don't know if you guys heard that. I got a compliment on my haircut. Uh, Here's what happened. Uh, In an effort to save money, I started cutting my own hair. And uh, it was not supposed to be this short, but uh, thank you. Thank you, Keller. I appreciate that. I, uh, we're all learning, right? We're learning and growing. Hey, this morning, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. All right? It's going to be clear why we're... Well, you know, the hope is that it will be clear why we're doing what we're doing. But we're going to have the worship at the end of the service today. What? I know. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to mimic the Exodus story. So we're trying to... They get rescued, and then they respond through singing. So we're going to mimic that movement of the story. Don't worry, we're not going to like release gnats or mosquitoes or boils. There's not going to be that much mimicking, but we're going we're gonna to try to see what happens if we do the worship at the end of the service today. So if you have a Bible, please stand with me. We are in Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. Exodus 6, 1 to 8. Exodus 6, 1 to 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father, Father, uh, it's so easy to come into this space because we ought to. 
It's so easy to come to church because it's what we did last Sunday. God, I pray that you would help us fight that. God, that we would come into this room expectant, that we would come into this room looking for you to work, that we would experience your presence, your spirit, that we'd receive correction from your word. God, that we would experience revival. God, we, we pray expectantly that you would make us new, that we would see you do a new thing here in 2021 in Columbia, Missouri. God, we ask expectantly in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. Now, we're not trying to be morbid here, but I want you to imagine your funeral. And again, imagine your funeral. It's, this is years Decades away, long way off, all right? You're imagining your funeral. There's been lots of evenings on the porch watching sunset, you know, drinking Arnold Palmer's with loved ones, lots of that. But we're at your funeral, all right? What are some things, some words, just one word answers, what are some one word answers you would like people to say about you at your funeral? Oh, man, Craig was so... You know, Roger was so, Susan was so. What are some one-word answers that would be awesome if you heard at your funeral? Kind. kind. Tyler was kind. All right, we got kind. That's a great answer. What are some other things you'd like to hear at your funeral? Generous. Ah, oh, generous. All right, good. Kind, generous. A good listener. I actually want to hear that at my funeral. That's a, th yeah, Craig was present. He was a good listener. Thanks. All right, what? Faithful, generous, kind, good listener, faithful. Does anybody have a pen? All right, I'm going to borrow your pen for a second. Here we go. Folks at home, just use your imagination. All right, I'm going to write down a word. I bet nobody's going to say it. Keep going, though. What else do, we want to, what else do you want to hear? Thoughtful. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to be thought of as Thoughtful. All right, one more. Humble. Oh, that's a good one. All right. The word I wrote down, nobody said it. I'm confident no one would say it. No one said it in the first service. Just a word we don't really think of often. But it's a really, really, really big deal. Like a really big deal. Like it's actually a paradigm most of the biblical authors see through. It's lenses through which they look at the world. There's one word that kind of defines and describes the Christian experience. Okay? What word, what word is it? What word is it? Free. 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 Would they say about us at our funeral, we were free? We really lived like free people. See, for a lot of us, uh, freedom, especially in our culture, has just, it's either become like a propaganda buzzword, freedom, or it's just become like a, just a mask for so many things. I mean, politically, if you're on the right or on the left, politically on the right, people are all about like economic freedom, right? Don't tell, don't regulate this, don't regulate how I spend my money, I'm free. And on the left, did I say that right? That's the, the right. On the left, it's sexual and morality, don't tell me who to sleep with. Don't tell me how to identify. I'm free. Don't regulate that. Free. And so sometimes as Christians, we're like left in the backdrop of like, oh, uh, is freedom bad? 
Because freedom can also be paralyzing, right? So much freedom. Like there's a wide open path before you. Like some of us, we think of lives like we're like a train, right? We just, as long as we know we're on the tracks, we're good to go. But too much freedom can feel like you're a hot air balloon. Like you can go up, down, left, right, 3D, 4D. You know, you can just go anywhere you want. Freedom can be paralyzing. Freedom, we've also seen people abuse it. You know, we all know, we all know that guy, it's most often a guy, he's in his late 50s and he's just bought a new Porsche and it's red and he's experiencing freedom. He dumped his wife, got a younger model because he's free. Where really freedom is just a mask for a midlife crisis. He knows he's going to die and he wants to erase things that remind him of that reality. And so I think particularly in the Midwest, we are really susceptible to fear of freedom. I've had the privilege of living all over America. And, you know, I was just with friends in California. And uh, talking about freedom, like, hey, you're free. It's like, yeah, no, no kidding. Like, we are, we are, you know, children of hate Ashbury. Of course we're free. What do you mean? How, are people not free? That's terrible. Right? Like, every region of this country seems to have different things that we kind of struggle with. So, for example, I grew up in the Northeast. In the Northeast, uh, the, 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 the idol there, it may be, like, intellect, you know? So, hey, do you subscribe to The New Yorker, but not The Atlantic? Oh, my goodness. Do you not give money to WBUR Boston? Oh, my goodness. Who are you reading these days, right? What we know. That becomes our safety net. And on the West Coast, particularly Southern California, it's not about what you know, but it's about your image. Do you, are you with it? Are you beautiful? Are you relevant? If not, what do we need to put in our faces to let us look a little bit more relevant? Like what, what how, beauty and image, intellect in the Midwest, I don't know what it is. If it's like, because we're children of farmers, uh, if it's like we're kind of driven by duty. And so there can be just a really heavy spirit of, of oppression almost. Of like, man, like we're duty bound to do things. We ought to do these things. Life is hard. Don't have big expectations on God. He's the one who's really the, the really hard taskmaster. The, the biblical story we're going to look at today wants to blow that up. The Exodus, which is what we're going to look at, wants you to wholeheartedly embrace your identity as a son and a daughter, as being free. The Exodus says we're no longer slaves. We are free. And, and the Exodus is not an invitation for us to just kind of embrace that identity. It's an invitation for us to wholeheartedly let it color how we see everything. Let it be the truest thing about us. We are free. And part of the challenge that we have in kind of navigating the Exodus story, it's a really big story. There's a ton of stuff going on. And also, it's really confusing. Like, if we're being honest... If I'm saying, hey, the Exodus is all about us being free, we have some questions about how God sets us free, right? Like, so there's these plagues, right? I don't want to, I mean, the plague was not a pleasant time. There's 10 of them in the Exodus. It's like, God, are, are you sure? Like, you're for us. What is, what, what's, and then the last, the last plague, kids die. That, that creates tension, what is God up to? 
And we want to live in that tension. We want to feel that tension. You know what's hilarious? Hilarious. All right, we're in a, to me at least. Uh, we are in a series called What is the Bible? I think we've been, this is like maybe our fifth week. I don't know if you've noticed, I have not answered that question. Every week we're getting up here and I'm talking, I have never said, here's what the Bible is. Because I wanted you to come back for five weeks before you could get the answer, all right? Here's what the Bible is, though. The Bible is a story. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's, it's God's story. It has God's notes. Uh, we're really comfortable reading the commentary on the story. So, like, Ephesians is a break from the story to give commentary on it. But most of the Bible, like 70% of it, is story. It's God's story. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And the invitation of seeing this big story is that we would see this big story and make sense out of our story. But the Bible is a story. And there's tension and there's twists and turn all throughout this story. But God doesn't just show, he tells, excuse me, whoa. God doesn't just tell, he shows. God doesn't just tell you you're free. You're free, work really hard to believe that. God wants to show us we're free. Because as human beings, we make sense of our lives through stories. We make sense of our lives through stories. Uh, it's, it's, it might be urban legend. I don't know. I've read articles that said it was true. I've read other articles that say it wasn't true. But there's an urban legend that I will say is true. All right? And I'm not a Hemingway authority by any stretch of the imagination. But Hemingway... Uh, entered a bet with some friends to see if he could write a story in six words. The six-word story. Can he write a six-word story? So he goes in his study, starts working. He's working really hard. And after six or so weeks, he emerges with this short story. And it's devastating. And it shows us the power of story. Just pay attention to what you imagine and what you feel with these six words. Maybe you feel skept being a little skeptical right now. These six words are devastating. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. What do, you, what do you picture when you hear that short story? For sale, baby shoes, never worn. I imagine a father, maybe it's my own situation in life. I imagine a father filling out this want ad and just giving up. But our minds start to race and, and, and we imagine things, we feel things, we think about our own experiences, we think of friends. We make sense of life through stories. And when God wants us to embrace freedom, he tells a story. He shows us how he's working to move heaven and earth to free us. He's, he's working hard. It's a really, really big deal that we embrace the Exodus story. The Exodus story is the paradigm through which almost all the biblical authors see God. In Luke 9, Jesus is talking about, some translations say, he's telling his disciples about his departure. Here, you can learn a Greek word, ready? The Greek word is exodos. He is telling them about his exodus. He's coming, he is for us, he's going to get us out of here. Paul, that's the paradigm he thinks. Every, Isaiah, all the biblical authors were shaped by this story. This story offers us a different identity and a different narrative, a different way of talking to ourselves. See, it's so easy to make sense out of our circumstances 
we make sense out of them just by what's coming at us. So think about the, the person who's like, hey, God, all right, I want to take the next step. I want to honor you. I want to get, I want to just like, what is following you look like? All right, God, here I am. I'm ready to take the next step. They pray that prayer. God, I want to follow you in obedience. What does that look like? They go to work the next day. Hey, there's been cutbacks. We don't need you anymore. What? It's, it's a hard circumstance. Wait, so is God punishing me? Is he testing me? We make sense out of our, our circumstances through the messages we tell ourselves. God's testing me. That's what's happening here. What, what, what about, what, we all do this all the time. The couple that's struggling with infertility. Every single month. Bad news after bad news. Oh, what, what, what? God, why are you doing this? And we start to fill in the blanks and make sense out of our suffering through our circumstances. But the Exodus gives us something more true than our circumstances. The Exodus is a wild story that's confusing. And God is a little confusing in it. And we've talked about that. And we want to embrace the roller coaster. And here's, here's the invitation. Is if we can't see his hand, remind ourselves of his heart. When life is spinning out of control and you can't see God's hand, what are you doing? What are you up to? The Exodus reminds us of his heart. And what is that heart? He's saying, I am with you. I'm Yahweh. I'm with you. I am for you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to redeem you. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to, he reclaims us for himself. You're no longer slaves. You're sons and daughters. He's telling us this message so that when life gets hard and we can't see his hand, we can make sense out of things by seeing his heart. God does not want us to like embrace this kind of like, oh, okay, God loves me. I'm a son and daughter. That's great. He wants us to move into a full, deep experience of the reality of the truest thing about us is if you trust Jesus, you're not a slave anymore. You're a son and a daughter. If we don't embrace that, the problem is we start to treat God like Pharaoh instead of like Yahweh. Well, I just should go to church. I should get involved in a small group. I should sing like I mean it. But if we don't see, if we don't see this reality that what God is offering us, this deep identity, we're going to treat him like Pharaoh and we're going to stay at a distance. And like what we talked about last week, we're going to hide because Pharaoh is harsh. My concern, again, is that for a lot of us in the Midwest, for whatever reason it has, my own anecdotal experience, I feel like lots of people think that God is Pharaoh and they just got to get in line with worshiping Pharaoh. But the God of the Exodus is a redeemer. He reveals himself as being with us, as coming after us, as loving us, as rescuing us in trouble. The very first time the word redeem is mentioned in the Bible is in Exodus 6, what we just read. I will redeem you. It sets a paradigm for how we understand this wild story. And it's a wild story. So, settle in, buckle up, whatever analogy you want to use. Actually, stand up because we're going to do some hand motions. We're going to try to work these high points of the story into our fingers. We want to move from our Head to our hearts to our hands, okay? So we want to remember the Bible's a story. Here's some of the mountaintop points, okay? I, in the early service, I struggled a little bit, you know? I blamed it on a newborn. I didn't wake up last night, so I can't do that, but don't tell them. Okay, we ready? 
Creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, Torah, David, prophets, Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus and his cross, church, Paul, revelation. All right, give yourselves a round of applause. You can have a seat. Well done. Well done. If the Exodus story really is about us believing that God is our redeemer and us living into that identity, not being defined by sin and shame, what does that look like? How do we do that? How do we really, how do we really start to see what's going on here and believe what God says about us? Well, the first thing we have to recognize and realize is that if we, if we see in Moses' story, Moses, the, the, the miracles don't start happening until Moses fully surrenders and fully believes. Last week we talked about Exodus 3. God reveals himself to Moses, so he shows up. He says, I'm with you. We didn't read the rest of the story, though. In the rest of the story, he's like, can you send somebody else? And Yahweh's like, no, you're the guy. And he says, yeah, but I'm, and it literally says, I'm uncircumcised of tongue. Like, I can't do this. And literally what a lot of scholars think is that he's saying he has a speech impediment. Like, I'm not the guy. I don't want to go. And so he's like, no, 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 you, you're going to go. I don't want to go. And there's this, like several verses of just back and forth Moses arguing with God. That's kind of crazy if you just think about it for a second. Then God's like, fine, I'm going to send Aaron with you. And then if you read your, your heading titles, basically from chapter 3 to chapter 7, it's just this back and forth. It says, Yahweh gives his plan to Moses. Yahweh reviews his plan with Moses. Moses pushes back. Yahweh gives the plan again. It's back and forth. And what happens is when Moses fully, all right, I surrender, I submit. That's when we start to see the miracles happening. We won't fully see what God is doing until we surrender in trust. We won't fully see what God is up to if we have one foot in and one foot out. If when we sin, we come up with our own rescue mission to save ourselves. Oh, I sinned. I feel bad. I've got to just get involved with, I've got to be busy at church. I've got to read my Bible more. I, I, still hiding from God. I've got, to, I've got to figure out how to get back here. If we fully embrace our identity as sons and daughters, we start to see God at work. I used to skateboard in college. Surprise, surprise. I was trying to be cool, okay? Uh, and I used to skate vert. Does anybody know what that is? It's like half pipes, okay? I was never very good. Don't worry. I think there's videos somewhere. Um, but uh, an eight-foot vert ramp, okay? That sounds so lame right now. I'm so sorry. But an eight, I'm a dad. I just embrace, you know, I used to do cool things. All right? So if you're on an eight-foot vert ramp, you're, you have a board, and you're sticking out here, okay? And your weight naturally goes away from it because it's a straight drop is what it feels like. The only way to really not die going off it is to throw your body off a straight slide. And you, they're like, oh, yeah, you probably won't get it for like, 20 times. You have to fall 20 times before you kind of figure it out. Whew, that's what trusting God can feel like. It's like, hey, I feel terrible. You're telling me I'm loved. There's a famous USC coach, um, John McKay. I believe it was John McKay. His son, uh, J.K. McKay, catches a winning touchdown. Reporters run up to John McKay. Oh, you must have been so proud. Your son caught the winning touchdown. He says, I was proud of him before he ever went on the field. That's God's heart toward us. That's really hard to believe. We, ever since Genesis 3, we've been hiding. 
And now the invitation is come out of hiding and I love you and I'm here to forgive you and make you new. And we're like, but I'm not, not all is right. Like I'm not present with my kids. I'm not as generous as I could be. I'm not kind. I, I'm not even who I want to be. Like the thing said about my funeral, it's people, yes, I hope it's true, but it's also me being nice. And, and God's saying, hey, I'm the one doing this. I'm the one rescuing you. And if you trust me, it will change how you navigate and walk through the world. But if you don't, you're going to keep hiding. You're going to treat me like Pharaoh. You're not going to experience and see all that, the, the amazing things I'm doing for you. See, the, 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 the passage we just read, Exodus 6, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Here's what, here's what Yahweh says the point of the Exodus is. Exodus 6, verse 5. I've heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to Israel, I'm Yahweh. I will bring you up from the yoke of uh, the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. Yahweh is on a rescue mission for his children. Remember, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you, through your family. Through your family, your family is going to reverse the curse. The world's broken, but I'm going to bless it. I'm going to turn cursing into blessing. I'm going to do it through your family. That family has found themselves in slavery. How are we going to be a blessing when we're stuck here, when we're enslaved? God says, I'm doing this. I'm going to do all these signs and wonders in Egypt so that you get rescued, so you can be a blessing to the world. But that's not where it stops. All right, Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. This is a crazy verse. Please don't miss this. If we miss this, we'll misunderstand the whole Exodus. All right? So context, God says, hey, I'm going to do all these plagues. I'm going to go to Egypt. And here's why we're going to do this. Here's why the Exodus is happening. We should pay attention. We want to make sense of the Exodus. Here's why the Exodus is happening. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israel out of it. The Exodus is a missionary endeavor. It wasn't just so Israel would know. Yes, it was. Exodus 6, I'm doing this so you'll know that I'm Yahweh. But Exodus 7 says, we're going into Egypt to also rescue Egyptians. He said this, your family is going to be a blessing to the whole world. You're in slavery. That's not stopping this plan. I'm going to let you be a blessing even to the Egyptians. This, is, this has always been about rescuing the world. And even while you're enslaved, we're going to use this experience to rescue Egyptians. And here's what's nuts. In Exodus 14 or 13, when they're headed out, when they're headed out, it says that they left with all the Egyptians' money, right? Remember that? They, that's where we get the phrase, plunder the Egyptians. They left with all the Egyptians' money. But there's also a phrase we read over too quickly. They left with a mixed multitude. The Israelites left Egypt with a mixed multitude. What does that mean? It wasn't just Israelites who left Egypt. Egyptians were like, sign us up. We're out of here too. The Exodus is a missionary endeavor. Okay? Why is it important? God is saying, I'm going to be Israel's redeemer. I'm also going to reverse the curse. That's what the Exodus is all about. I am for you. I am with you. I'm coming after you to rescue you. Now, it's going to get crazy. But as it gets crazy, we got to remember, if we can't see his hand, look for his heart. All right? It's going to get nuts in a second. But we see God's heart. He's rescuing Israel. He's rescuing Egypt. That's his heart. Now, 
This, there it is. I knew it fell off. This is a plastic bag with a piece of paper that was stapled to it. Okay? On Saturday night, I handed someone money, and they handed me this. For those of you who can't see this in the back or at home, it's a white plastic bag that says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And there's a piece of paper, piece of paper stapled to it. All right? So I gave someone money. They gave me this. Now, more than likely, what was in this bag when it was handed to me? All right, for those of you who didn't hear, we got takeout, we got food. Here's my question. How do you know that? It doesn't say takeout anywhere on here. It doesn't say food anywhere on here. But how do we know that this bag had food in it? Because we live in a culture that communicates in a certain way, and we just take that for granted. We live in a culture where we say things all the time that don't make any sense to anyone outside of said culture, okay? That's a big missing puzzle piece in the Exodus story. It was not communicated to a culture of people who get takeout in plastic bags that say thank you. It was communicated to an ancient culture, and that's actually a huge, huge way we see God's heart. God is speaking the language of the people he's trying to reach. And so what we have to do is we have to sort out what exactly is he saying. Okay, hang on for just a second. We in the West, ever since the Enlightenment, are skeptical of the supernatural. We are almost anti-supernatural. As Charles Taylor said, basically after the Enlightenment, we put a ceiling up. And nothing, goes, nothing comes down through that ceiling, nothing goes up, all right? Like this, we're naturalists, naturally, all right? We are naturally naturalists. We are suspicious of the supernatural. That's just the culture we live in. These people did not live in that culture. Everything was seen through the lenses of the supernatural, especially nations, wars, and armies. So here's why. The gods in the ancient Near East, if, if, you had, if you were an Egyptian, Egypt had gods that were only the gods of the Egyptians. Likewise, the Israelites had gods that were only the gods of the Israelites. Mesopotamia, the Philistines, they all had their own gods. And it wasn't like there was a God saying, hey, I rule everything until Yahweh. Yahweh says, hey, I'm not just the God of this area over here. I'm the God of everything. And so that's why when he shows up to Pharaoh, who, by the way, people believed was a God, Pharaoh goes, who is this Yahweh? I've never heard of him. He's, it's, he's throwing down the gauntlet. All right? The Exodus story, in Exodus 12, 12, it says this. Yahweh went into Egypt to Give judgment against Egypt's gods. So, it would be just like today. Who are our gods? Money. All right? Who are our gods? Status. Success. So, it would be like Jesus showing up and saying, hey, you all trust money? Money is going to let you down. Let me start to tug on this whole money being your security, and I'll let you watch your house of cards fall. That's what he's doing. And remember, he's doing it so that the Israelites would know he's Yahweh and so that the Egyptians would know he's Yahweh. He's coming to rescue. We can see his heart here. He's saying, if you can't see my hand, look toward my heart. Now, 
Who's the ultimate God he's coming up against? Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is an incredibly cruel God. He's incredibly cruel. He hates the Israelites. In chapter 1 and 2, it talks about his plan to get rid of them. It's a three-phase plan. Phase 1, slavery. Ah, these people are scary. They're going to grow and multiply. Let's make them slaves. That'll slow them down. It doesn't. I mean, they were just popping out babies like it was going out of style. Uh, what do we do? Let's have a quiet genocide. So he hires these two housewives, say, hey, go around and kill the baby. So when the baby boys, boys are born, before they can even see it, just like make sure it dies. Quiet genocide. The text tells us that these two housewives feared God, and so they would lie. They would say, like, hey, the baby, they, these Hebrew women, they just like spit them out. We can't help it. I don't know. It's weird. And so Pharaoh then moves his, his, to phase three. He goes from slavery to a quiet genocide to an overt genocide, just throwing kids in the Nile. This man is a special kind of evil. In the biblical story, he is the embodiment of Babel. Of all that is rebellion against God, he embodies. He is given 12 opportunities to turn, and each time, he, even his advisors are like, bro, this is not working. This is not worth it. You just got to slow down. And he puts, he's all gas, no brakes. All right? And, and everything around him is like, this isn't a good, this is not good. This is not going to end well. And he doesn't care. And so he is the schoolyard bully, and God has to break the bully to rescue his kids. So many of us, depending on how old we are, are not shaped in our view of the Exodus by Scripture. We're shaped by one of two films, and I'm in the older crowd, okay? Film number one is Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments. All right. If you haven't seen it, it's actually a pretty good movie. It's solid. You know, I think I like better the Ben-Hur. Anybody Ben-Hur fans? Solid film. All right. Okay. That shapes how we view the Exodus. And if you're a little bit younger, probably my age and down, there's another film, The Prince of Egypt. Okay. So for a lot of us, those have shaped how we understand the Exodus, not the biblical story. Also, does anyone know what flannel graphs are? It is my, it is my mission in life that we put flannel graphs in storage and just leave them there for forever, okay? Amen. Thank you. All God's people said amen. They flatten the story of the Bible. They take out the, the hard stuff. They take out the excitement and then just boring, okay? Here's the plagues do create tension. How is God good? How is he for us? How is he our redeemer when he's doing all this horrible stuff, okay? Here's what you have to understand first. There are not 10 plagues. There are 12 miracles, we tend to think of it as like, oh, there's just 10 plagues. But if we do that, we miss the whole picture of what God's trying to do. There are not 10 plagues. There are 12 miracles. We chop off two things that God does. The first thing he does is with, it's a two-part miracle. Moses sticks his hand into his cloak, pulls it out, and it's got leprosy. And the other thing he does is he throws the serpent down, or this rod down, it becomes a serpent. That's one we chop off. The other one we chop off is the, uh, the Red Sea. That's a, that's a miracle that God does. And it helps us understand the whole story. So what's the whole story that's telling us? Remember, Exodus 12, 12. God is coming after money. He's coming after materialism. He's coming after success. He's coming after status. He's coming after the Egyptian gods to show them there's no life here. In Egypt, if you look at, even today, if you look at hieroglyphics, if you look at like the crowns, there's snakes everywhere. Snakes in Egypt were spiritual guardians. They were the bodyguards. And so miracle number one is 
Yahweh shows up. Pharaoh's like, I don't know him. And he's like, well, he's dangerous. And he throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. Okay? They're like, no problem. We got snakes. They throw down the, and they see all these snakes. The, the, the priests were able to replicate it somehow. The text kind of implies that it's trickery. And so they, they're snakes and Yahweh's snake eats their snake. It's, poof, God fires one across the bow. All right? He's saying, hey, I'm not safe. You're messing with my kids. I'm coming for you, Pharaoh. I'm coming after you. And Pharaoh shrugs it off. So the first three miracles are just warning shots. They don't do a ton of damage, and they're like, turn, repent. But Pharaoh doesn't. He keeps cranking up his rebellion. So let me just give you another example. And this is, see, it's really important that we let the Bible speak for the Bible and not let our culture speak for the Bible. Okay? It's really important that we let the Bible take us where the Bible wants to take us and that we don't let culture dictate how the Bible should be read. Now, the first plague or the second miracle is when God turns the Nile to blood. Think with me for just a second. Okay, Exodus 7.24 says this. This is just details about how we sometimes let culture shape our understanding of the plagues. And we're like, what? It just, the Bible ends up seeming weird. Exodus 7.24. So the, the, the Nile has been turned to blood. And it says this. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Now, I, uh, I didn't pay attention in science class as a, as a kid. Uh, but do, so any scientists out there uh, or doctors, does water, uh, can you get water, can you filter blood into water? Can you filter blood into water? Through sand. No, you cannot. Okay? You cannot. You cannot. If, if you dig along the Nile and it's blood, it will not turn into water because it went through some sand. Okay? More than, in, in Hebrew, there's not many words for liquid. There's blood, wine, and water. Those are the three words they have for liquid. So the text is saying it became like blood. It was red and the fish died. So probably some pollutant supernaturally fills the Nile. But think about it. If it was blood, it would become a scab in like 20 minutes, uh, and that would really terrify Pharaoh. But Pharaoh shrugs it off, because remember, these are warning shots. Pharaoh literally goes, no big deal, and walks away. Remember, the authority that we have is not our imagination of the text, but is the text. These first three miracles are just warning shots. Please turn. And I'm here to rescue the next four miracles become economic miracles. It's like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's going to be hail, there's going to be gnats, there's going to be all these things that are they're going to affect your economy. So please turn. Things start to get cranked up. And what's the goal in cranking things up? It's so that Israel and it's so that uh, the Egyptians would know that God is revealing himself as redeemer. Trust me, I'm here to save you. I'm here to rescue. Not just Israel, but also Egypt with you. This is a missionary endeavor. I want you to know I'm a redeemer. I'm here to rescue and I'm picking on the bully. All right? Then we get to the 11th miracle or the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And for so many of us, we're like, What? How is this good? This is awful. And it is. I'm not trying to take the tension out. That, that tension you feel like, wait, how can God be good and do this? Feel that tension. Okay? 
There's lots of those in the Bible, and the biblical authors know that we're going to be like, what? God is good, but he killed all the firstborn. It says, it doesn't just say Pharaoh's firstborn. It says a slave woman who stands behind two millstones. So he's saying the highest of the high and the lowest of the lows. And we're just like, what are you doing, God? Again, we have to remember two things. One, the Bible wasn't written to our culture. We have a different understanding of violence than they do. We have a different understanding of just thinking through the way the world works. So this is meant to be an answer. It is not something that makes all the tension go away, but we're supposed to wrestle through that tension. And in the wrestling, we meet God. So here's some answer of what's happening. Remember, Exodus 12, 12. Yahweh is going to war with the gods of Egypt. And all the, and the gods of Egypt, you know, we talked about, there was a, oh, we, I didn't say this. Uh, the Nile, there was a god called Happy who lived at the bottom of the Nile. And so when God fires a warning shot, he's also taking on Happy. So the Nile bleeds out. So it's like your imagination is supposed to be Happy is living at the bottom of the Nile. And Moses takes his rod and boom, like stabs Happy and he bleeds out into the Nile. God's taking on Egyptian gods. Finally, he's near the top. And he's almost to Pharaoh. We're not quite at Pharaoh yet. The ultimate God. And it kills, it says, the firstborn. The nuance of the text of killing the firstborn, it, it is, yes, literally the firstborn child, but it's also the choice child. It's the language of the army. So what, what's happening is God is taking out Pharaoh's army. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, war was not seen as just, oh, hey, we want territory. It was also gods fighting other gods. So think about it. When Israel goes to war, what do they bring with them all the time? The Ark of the Covenant. Why? It's not just a good luck charm. They're saying, our God is fighting your God, and he's here with us. There's his presence right there. Watch out, right? And so a, a, a nation who their army just lays flat would say, oh, our gods have been defeated. It's also, it's also God poking the bear of Pharaoh. He's saying, you killed all my firstborn kids? Stop or I'll kill your firstborn kids. It, and that's hard. The punishment fits the crime. But here's a beautiful thing. In that, God provides a way out. This is where Passover comes from. This is, this is where the Bible gets the idea of substitution. God is saying, hey, there is a way out. I provide it. Trust the substitute. In theological circles, a lot of people are picking on substitution. They're like, oh, it's not biblical. It's, in, it's all over the pages of scripture where God says, hey, the wages of sin is death, is separation. I'll take death on me. I will provide a substitute. Trust that substitute. Jesus himself says, I am the Passover lamb. He dies on Passover when he would have killed the lamb. That's when he dies. That all comes through this. He's provided ways out through all these miracles. And it's Pharaoh. It's Muammar Gaddafi. It's Mao Zedong. It's the most evil dictator alive today bringing this upon himself. And God's saying, I'm providing all these ways out. And we know from the text that people took that way out. Because in Exodus 13, it says, A large multitude of mixed people went out with the Israelites. So is it shocking? Yes. 
Should, should we try to minimize that shock? No, we feel that shock. The Bible is a story and there are roller coasters and there's tension in that story. And when we try to flatten it, people go away. They stop coming to church. There's tension here. Let's live in the, the tension. Now, Exodus 14 is the last miracle. It's the last miracle. In Exodus 14, uh, the Israelites are leaving Egypt. And we get this really odd sentence about how they leave in Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, we get some geography, excuse me, Exodus 13, that leads them to the Red Sea. Exodus 13, 17. So Pharaoh lets the people go. But God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. All right, pause for a second. Uh, I didn't do well in high school geometry. I actually cheated my way through high school geometry. Don't worry, this is not like a confession that lives online forever. My teacher knew. I had detention like every day. I had a job that was like really close to my high school and they would put into my schedule my detention times. So like my schedule, like people were supposed to start at like 3.15. I had to start at like 4.30 because there was detention and they would be shocked when I get there early because like, wait, what are you doing here? I'm like, I didn't have detention today, all right? So I, don't look to me for geometry help, okay? But and I know school's out for the summer, but just bear with me for a second. The shortest distance between two points is straight line. Yes. Not in God's economy. In God's economy, the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. Now listen to this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Here's what's nuts about that statement. When you can't see God's hand, look for his heart. Has anybody in here ever been in the desert? I got stuck in Death Valley once, and I was, I was there. It couldn't have been 30 seconds. I was like, oh my gosh, I want to die. This is awful. How do we get out of here? I hate this. Ah! Like, I was not, my brother-in-law helped us get out of there, but I was not super helpful, okay? These people at least made it 30 days without complaining. All right? And when God is taking you on this windy road in the desert, it's like, God, what are you doing? What, why, are we, why are we zigzagging all around? Let's just go that way. It's way closer. And he says, hey, I'm protecting you. When you can't see my hand, look for my heart. Do some of these plagues, are some of them like hard to understand? Like how is God good in this? Yes. But when we can't see his hand, look for his heart. He's our redeemer. He's saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. Don't stay at a distance. Embrace this identity. He's taking them on a winding road. Why? Because he's trying to protect them. All kinds of crazy things happen to us. We can pray for like, God, I, I want to I take the next step. I want to follow you. And then we lose our jobs. Life is confusing. As the theologian Mike Tyson once said, Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. All right? And if we make sense out of our circumstances, through our circumstances, God seems cruel. But if we can't see his hand and we look for his heart, we can start to see miracles and life really happening. The, the Israelites, were, they were guided out of Egypt with a, uh, a pillar of fire and a cloud. And the author makes it seem like they were not impressed. They're like, yeah, that's, that's that. 
There, yeah, of course, there's a, yeah, that makes sense, right? If, if we don't fully surrender, fully trust, we don't see all the amazing things God is already doing. If we compare ourselves to other churches, we miss what God is doing here. Ah, oh, well, the crossing. Ah, oh, well, anthem. And we don't see God dwells here and is changing lives here. If we just always compare, we miss what's happening here. And it's harder to trust. That's why Instagram is so bad. We just start, oh man, look at that life. I wish, I wish God would do a little bit more of that. Instead of saying, no, what, what, how can I be curious? God, help me see what you're already doing in my midst. See, Moses, again, the miracles don't start until he fully trusts. There are things, when we fully embrace this identity, there are things that God will do that we grow in our awareness of. God is always working, and we sometimes go through life totally unaware. The invitation of the Exodus is to fully embrace this identity. I'm not a slave anymore. That was the paradigm Paul thought through when he talks about baptism in Romans 6. This is super complicated, but just hang on for a second. Romans mimics the Hebrew Bible. And so we get promises to Abraham in chapter 4, and then we get uh, wilderness experiences in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he talks about the waters of baptism, and then he talks about some law in chapter 7. Here's what he's doing. He's mimicking the Exodus story. And he's saying, he's saying to the Christians... He's saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may be found? May it never be. Why? Because in chapter 6, you've gone through the waters of baptism. For Israel, it's like, hey, you can't go back to being a slave. Egypt is gone. It's not an option. You can live like a slave, but you're free. And that's what God wants for all of us. He's not like... He's not like, oh, passively, I really hope they kind of figure this out. He desires, he is anxious for you to claim that identity as not a slave, but a son or a daughter. And when we don't, terrible things happen. Unity becomes really hard. Because if, if we're not, if God isn't for us, loving us, we can turn things into like king of the mountain. Right? We get a scarcity mindset really fast. And we start becoming suspicious of other people. People become threats. But if we really do trust what God says about us, that he's like Coach McKay, that he's proud of us whether we make that touchdown pass or not, we start to get out of that scarcity mindset and things become opportunities to experience God's presence in richer and deeper ways. And what happens? What happens to Israel? What's the very first thing they do when they cross the Red See, they sing praise. See, a religion that's ought to and should, I should read my Bible more, I should be more present with my kids, I should uh, be a better uh, example at work, the should and the obligations never lead to praise. But seeing God work and move and rescue us and reveal himself as redeemer and, and reverse the curse, be a blessing to people we weren't expecting, the only appropriate response is praise. 
The first time the word redeemed is used is in Exodus 6, and the first time the word salvation is used is Exodus 15. The Exodus is the paradigm through which the biblical authors saw salvation. Salvation does not mean going to heaven when you die. All right, when, when we die, we will be with the Lord. That is, that is a hope we have. I'm not trying to take that hope away from anybody, okay? But salvation is so much more than that. Salvation, we can experience salvation today. Salvation, in the biblical author's mind, is when God intervenes to save us from trouble. The biggest trouble was the Pharaoh for the Israelites. Our biggest trouble was sin and the devil. But we experience salvation when God delivers us from trouble. When we pray, God, I want to follow you, I want to take that next step, and we lose our job, we're in trouble. We experience salvation. We say, okay, God, I can't see your hand, but I trust your heart. Do something. I'm, I'm here. I'm submitted. I'm surrendered. I want to follow. Help. And when we see God do something that only he can do, we have experienced salvation. And that's what the Israelites do. They praise. If you dug yourself out of the hole you're in, you, didn't, you, there's, you have nothing to sing about. How great am I? Right? And then you're just, what, what's happening though? You're waiting for the next shoe to drop. But if, if you've seen God be faithful again and again and get you out of sticky situations, it's, the car doesn't spin out as much when we start to trust. And again, this is not for people in the midst of suffering. We prepare ourselves with suffering for this. So please, if, some, if you know someone who's struggling with infertility, who, someone who's like, they've lost someone they love, please do not like say to them, hey, do you know the, the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag? God has you on a zigzag. That is not, I'm not, that is not why I'm giving you this information. We are preparing for when life rings our bell, for when we get, when we get our acting card punched, right? When we just, whoa, here we are, here, here it is. We're preparing for that by saying, hey, I got to remind, where's God's heart? Where's his heart? Who is he? We grieve with those who are grieving. That's a, please don't miss that. But at the end of it, when God intervenes, we experience salvation. And so we're going to sing. That's why today we put the singing at the end. We want to sing in response to what God has done. God has invited us not to have this identity of like, oh, hey, I really, you're JV Christian. I got my varsity Christian somewhere else, but I'll just put up with you for now. We'll see if we can get some wins. But I don't really want you to fully, don't get too comfortable. God wants us to embrace this identity, to wholeheartedly come into his presence and say, I'm your child. It sounds really righteous what Moses was doing, right? Like, God, who am I? I can't speak. I'm, I'm, I'm heavy of tongue. God again and again corrects Moses and gets mad at Moses and gets frustrated with Moses. You know what he never brings up when he's frustrated? He doesn't bring up, hey, you killed a guy. He brings up his unbelief. Unbelief keeps us from a deep awareness of what God is doing. It's a refusal to trust him. It's a refusal to see what he's about, that he is for us. He loves us. He is our redeemer. He's coming to save us. And we can experience that salvation in little ways every single day. That's what it means to experience heaven on earth. So look for God's salvation. So I don't want us to just sing before God right now. I want us to sing to God. We're not just going to sing in his presence. We're going to make these songs our prayers. So I want, we're going to stand. Would you stand with me and just give your hearts just a couple minutes. Say, God, what would it take for me today, right now, 
to sing to you, to come out of hiding, to come into your presence, and to really sing to you. Help me to trust what you say about me, that I'm no longer a slave, Egypt is gone, I'm a son and I'm a daughter. Father, I pray that your spirit would move and that we'd experience your power and your presence in this place today. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.